If you've got your Bibles, go to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 6. We are getting back to our series called Live It uh, from, the, from the Gospel of Mark. We, we hit the pause button in, uh, in December, and we're getting back going here now that Christmas is, is over, and uh, so we're going to be picking, picking that up. Have you ever uh, bought a product that over-promised and under-delivered? Uh, you, you know what I mean? Like, it had made these great claims and um, yet it just didn't really live up to the claim, so you either put it in the attic or put it on the shelf or took it back to the store to get your money back. Uh, here's just a couple examples of those products. First one's the Flowbee. Uh, anyone want to admit that they, they have a Flowbee or they bought a Flowbee or they used a Flowbee? Uh, true story, Jeff Brown has a Flowbee. I don't know if he uses it, uh, but he does have... The, here's, I mean, anything... When it comes to cutting your hair, if you have to hook a hose up to your shop vac, I don't know, that's a warning. Uh, it might be a red flag. But that's how this works. Hook up to your vacuum, vacuum not included. Uh, I, I love this line, the precision home haircutting system. Sounds so advanced. Uh, but uh, here's another picture. This is a Flobie fiasco. This is actually a picture of someone who used a Flobie, um, and that didn't go so well. So that, oftentimes that, a product like that would go back on the shelf. Here's another one. Uh, this is more recent. This is called a bubble dress. Now, this is a, an attempt to take fashion and combine it with technology. Here's how the dress works, ladies. Um, it, remember the old mood rings that would change colors uh, based on whatever mood you're in? That's what this is. Um, apparently, as you wear this dress, um, the, the, the dress changes colors by whatever mood you're, you're in, which, frankly, would be really helpful for some of us guys. Uh, <laughs> If it worked, uh, if it worked, my, my guess is I don't think this one's going anywhere. Um, here's another product. This one's called Sweet Sweat. Uh, this is a, a container, six and a half ounces of this cream that, uh, by the way, costs 35 bucks. And what you do is you, is you wipe it all over your body. And uh, when you work out, it's supposed to help you uh, really get in shape. Um, here's actually the actual words from the product. It says, have you ever wanted six-pack abs and huge muscles but felt like your workouts were always stale? If you're ready to take your results to the next level, then Sweet Sweat can help you get that ripped and cut body you always wanted. Rub a little cream on, presto, uh, you're in shape. Now, here's what happens with these products like, like Sweet Sweat is you buy them, you try them, they just they overpromise, under-deliver, and they go on a shelf, they go in your attic, or they go back to the store uh, because it just didn't come through for you. Now, here's the deal. The gospel of Jesus Christ often is marketed and sold like Sweet Sweat. It's... The, the gospel of Jesus Christ is often presented in this way that, you know what, if you would give your life to Christ, if you begin this relationship with Christ, then you need to know something. Life goes better with Jesus. And, and really, the, the greatest offenders of, of this life goes better with Jesus gospel selling are pastors. Because as we attempt to win and woo people into relationship with Christ, we, 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 we want to we, we let them know that, that, that life will go better. You'll be more happy. You'll be more satisfied. And, you know, there's levels of truth to that, obviously. Um, but this life goes better with Jesus gospel can be really dangerous because if, if life doesn't go better, we, we take 
Jesus back to the shelf, put him in the attic, or take him back to the church that we, we got him at. Um, and, and frankly, when we get to Mark chapter 6, and we get to these two stories, the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the water, the temptation is for me to preach a life goes better with Jesus gospel. Um, in these, you know, the feeding of the 5,000, you know, there's these 5,000 men. This is, the number doesn't include women and children. Uh, Jesus miraculously feeds them with five loaves and the multiplication of five loaves and two fish. And then the walking on the water, the, the Mark narrative doesn't give us the, the, the angle of, of Peter stepping out of the boat and walking on water, but some of the other gospel stories do. And so the walking on the water one is often, uh, you know, we're, we're, we look at that one as a, as a life goes better with Jesus sort of a representation of the gospel. Let me just flesh this out for you. I'll show it to you. Here's how you could preach it. Not that I would ever have done this, but here's some of my notes. The feeding of the 5,000. There's massive need in our world. We have meager resources to meet the need in our world. Jesus multiplies our meager resources to meet the massive need in our world. Here's the application. Application, if you have a need, ask Jesus and he'll multiply whatever meager resources you have and the need will be met because life goes better with Jesus. Or there's the walking on the water story. Here's how you could preach this one. Sometimes the storms of life are raging against us. And when you are in a storm, keep your eyes on Jesus. With your eyes fixed on Jesus, you will walk on water. Here's the application. If you're in a storm, if you're in a storm, keep your eyes on Jesus and you won't sink because life goes better with Jesus. Now the problem with this is, is that, you know, life doesn't always go better with Jesus. And by the way, before you form a committee and do the stoning of Stephen part two, or you begin looking for a new lead pastor, let's acknowledge this. Yes, sometimes God takes meager resources and multiplies them and meets astonishing needs. We have been witnesses to that, correct? We've seen that. Sometimes, many times, that happens. But other times, there are moments when there is no bread on the table. And we're wondering how we're going to pay that bill. So if, if we've bought into the life goes better with Jesus, when life doesn't go better, the temptation is like, well, well this isn't working for me. I, I, this is not, not why I got into this whole thing. Or the, the walking on the water thing, you know, fix your eyes on Jesus. Let's, let's acknowledge this is true. Not only is it true to do this, it's biblical. The, Hebrew, the writer of the book of, uh, of Hebrews says that Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. It is biblical. It is the right thing to fix your eyes on Jesus. But fixing your eyes on Jesus is no guarantee that you will not be overwhelmed by your circumstances. Sometimes the waves are so high that you can't even see Jesus. And the temptation is to market Jesus like he's a product And the danger in that is that when the product, so to speak, doesn't deliver, we take him back. We we put him over here on this shelf and we put him in that attic place or we just give up. Because that's not why we got into this thing. Because life was supposed to get better with Jesus. Here's what I want to do today. I want to look at what is really going on in these stories and talk about what it would mean for you and I. And just so you know, 
I believe in Jesus. Haven't stopped believing in Jesus. And life certainly is more meaningful and significant and fulfilling and hopeful in a relationship with Jesus Christ. But what we don't want to do is deceive ourselves into thinking that I got into this relationship because of what God would do for me. That's not the gospel. And I want to show you the message of of these two stories. I used to think the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on the water were completely disconnected stories. But what I've come to learn is that they are interconnected. Actually, they're together. Here, I want to show this to you. Uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 51 and 52. The feeding of the 5,000 has already happened. Jesus has walked on the water. That's already happened. Peter has walked on the water. And, and then we get this little bit in, in Mark 6, 51 and 52. Then he, speaking of Jesus, then he climbed into the boat and the wind stopped. They, meaning the disciples, they were totally amazed for they still didn't understand the significance of the miracle of the loaves. Their hearts were too hard to take it in. Okay, this verses, these two verses are from the walking on the water story. And in the walking of the water story, what, what is being said here is they didn't understand what happened with this, with this feeding of the 5,000. The feeding of the 5,000 was not simply a miracle. It was a miracle with a message. And the disciples' hearts were too hard, and they couldn't understand. They couldn't take in the meaning of it. So what we want to do is we want to make sure that we understand the meaning, the message behind the miracle. The miracle is a little bit like a parable. It's pointing. It's like a sign. It's pointing to something that God is doing. So real quickly, what I want to do is go back to the feeding of the 5,000, give you a little context, show you the clues that would help us understand what the message is behind the miracle. Now, Mark chapter 6, what we got going on here is uh, at the beginning of the chapter, you get Jesus being rejected at Nazareth, and then you have Jesus sending out his disciples. And they're going out through Galilee, preaching the kingdom of God in villages and hamlets. Now, as they are going, what's happening is that people who are demonized or who are oppressed uh, by evil spirits are being delivered. And people who are suffering from diseases and illnesses are being cured or healed. And this is getting people's attention. In fact, news is spreading in Galilee of what God is doing there through through his messengers. And that news in the north of Galilee is actually trickling down through the entire nation and gets to the ears of Herod, which is why in uh, in chapter 6, verse 14, you've got this little insertion of a story of the death of John the Baptist. The reason that's there is because People are talking about Jesus, but Herod, along with others, have come to the conclusion that John the Baptist has come back from the dead. So you get the whole story about how John the Baptist was was executed. Uh, And then you've got the disciples coming back from the short-term mission trip, this awakening that's taking place in Galilee, and they come back and they're in this debrief meeting with, with Jesus. But they can't have that meeting because people are going and coming. And, and so Jesus takes them and they're going to take them to a quiet place. But that place doesn't remain quiet because there's people just buzzing around them. So Jesus, uh, it, it says uh, in uh, verse 34, Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat. They're, that's where they're going to that quiet place. And he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. 
So he began teaching them many things. So the disciples have been in this, uh, this preaching deal, this short-term missions trip. There's this awakening, spiritual awakening. The news is traveling through the land. They try to debrief it. It's not working. Too many people around. Jesus begins teaching again. Now it's late in the afternoon. And late in the afternoon, his disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to nearby farms and villages and buy something to eat. But Jesus said... You feed them. With what, they asked. We'd have to work for months to earn enough money to buy food for all these people. How much bread do you have, he said. Go and, go and find out. They came back and reported, we have five loaves of bread and two fish. Then Jesus told the disciples to have the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of 50 or 100 Jesus took the five loaves and two fish, looked up toward heaven, and blessed them. Then breaking the loaves into pieces, he kept giving the bread to the disciples so they could distribute it to all the people. He also divided the fish for everyone to share. They all ate as much as they wanted. And afterward, the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftover bread and fish. A total of 5,000 men and their families were fed from these loaves. Now, this miracle shows up in three out of the four Gospels. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's, it's astonishing because um, there, it's, it's packed with clues. It's packed with clues about, uh, about who, uh, who Christ is. And the disciples couldn't put two and two together. Their hearts were too hard. So let me just walk you through the clues here so you can see what the message is. What's the message to the miracle? Is it life goes better with Jesus' message, or is there something else going on here? Clue number one, they sat down in groups of 50 to 100 This is not some insignificant detail. It's referring back to Exodus chapter 18 when Moses was administering justice to the people, the the Israelites. His father-in-law said, Moses, you're going about the wrong way. Let me teach you a leadership principle. Right now, you've got everyone lining up to talk to you. That's how Pharaoh did it. You should break him into groups of a thousand, hundreds, and fifties, and tens. And, And Moses did that. That became his new leadership model. This little detail in the feeding of the 5,000 is a clue. It's a breadcrumb that's going to lead us to the messages. That's clue number one. Clue number two you find in verse 42. They were miraculously provided bread and meat in the wilderness. Remember when that's happened before? Children of Israel in the, in the desert, right? You've got manna. You've got quail. Clue number three. They were like sheep without a shepherd. This is a reference to a messianic prophecy. Zechariah chapter 10 verse 2 says, The people wander like sheep, oppressed for a lack of a shepherd. Ezekiel 34 verses 11 through 12 say, For this is what the sovereign Lord says, I myself will search and find my sheep. I will be like a shepherd looking for his scattered flock. I will find my sheep and rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on that dark and cloudy day. And then verse 23, same chapter says, And I will set over them One shepherd, my servant David, he will feed them and be a shepherd to them. So there's these prophecies that talk about God himself being the shepherd. That's clue number three. Clue number four, uh, last one here, is Jesus came toward them walking on the water. This is the walking on the water story. Job chapter 9, verse 8 says this about God. He alone has spread out the heavens and marches on the waves of the sea. Now, you put those four clues together, and what's happening here, Jesus is, 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 
He's sending a message. The one that was prophesied that would come is now here, and, and I am the one. And it's, it's a reference to the Old Testament prophecy of in Deuteronomy chapter 18 when the people refused to go to Mount Sinai because God's presence was so powerfully manifested there. The smoke and the fire. And they said, we can't go on that mountain. We can't go near that mountain or we'll die. And God tells Moses, they're right. And Moses wants to give up his job. And he says to God, I'm giving up my job. You appoint another leader or else they will be like sheep without a shepherd. And then God says to Moses, no, you're staying in the job. But one day I'm going to raise up a prophet from among you. One whom you should all listen to. The picture in that prophecy is God is unapproachable in the fire and smoke of Mount Sinai, but one day God is going to make himself approachable. In fact, God is going to take on flesh, and he is going to be Emmanuel, God with us. God is coming to be with us. God with That is the meaning of all the clues. I've got three grandkids my, my oldest uh, grandkid is, is a granddaughter. She, her name is Finley. Uh, Finn loves to play hide-and-seek. Um, in fact, when I come home from working here, and oftentimes uh, Finn is at our house, and when she hears the garage door comes up, uh, going up, she, she runs in the house, and she, uh, because she likes to play hide-and-seek, she wants to hide. So when I walk through the door, Trina is usually saying, like, oh, hey, Papa, can you find Finn? And, and it's really not that hard to find Finn because she always hides in the same place. <laughs> There's this piece of furniture in our, in our bedroom, and uh, what she does is she goes behind the furniture, and she hides there, and you can see her feet, okay? And, uh, she, and she's not like uh, some of you who play hide-and-seek. You could hide for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes because you found a great place. You don't want anyone to find you. That's not my granddaughter. She lasts like 10 seconds. She starts like saying my name from behind this piece of furniture. She starts squealing, and then maybe, maybe 15, 20 seconds, she pops out like, hi, here I am. And I'm like, oh, I never would have known you were there. And, and she, loves, she loves to play hide-and-seek. Here's something you need to know about God. God plays hide-and-seek. As you get to know him, what you need to understand is, is God often hides. In fact, Isaiah chapter 45 says, Truly you are a God who has been hiding himself, the God and Savior of Israel. This oftentimes, this prompts questions from people who are on spiritual journeys. You're like, well, why isn't God more obvious? Why doesn't God do something dramatic to prove who he is? Well, first way to answer that question is he has done some pretty dramatic things. Creation, resurrection, ascension, sent his spirit. I mean, there's some pretty dramatic things that God has done. Yet I understand the, 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 the meaning behind the question. Why does God just be more obvious Here's why. Because what he's doing is he's playing hide and seek with us. There are moments when we sense God is very near and close. And yet there are moments where God doesn't come through in the way we expected. There is no bread on the table. The waves are so high, the circumstances are overwhelming. And what God is doing, he's wondering, will, when he hides, will we still pursue him? Will we still want to be with him?
Or will we, like Sweet Sweat or a Flowbee or any other product that feels like it's overpromised and underdelivered, will we just put them on the shelf, put them in the attic, or take them back to the church we found them at? He plays hide and seek with us to find out if our hearts are truly for him. Or are we in this relationship based on what he'll do for us? That's why he leaves breadcrumbs. That's why God plays hide and seek. And I'm going to show this to you because as we sort of just play out the handles here of of the meaning of these stories for us, and we look at the, 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 the disciples, they're freaking out in the boat. I mean, you can understand this. They've never seen anyone walk on the water before. But if they had seen the clues and understood, you know, one time God was unapproachable, but now he is among us. And when they see this, this person walking on the water, instead of being, of being completely frightened out of their minds, they would have remembered that Jesus said, you get in the boat, I'll meet you on the other side. And by the way, Jesus insisted that they go in the boat. They didn't want to. And they did exactly what Jesus told them to do. You ever done exactly what Jesus told you to do and then life didn't get better? That's what happened to the disciples. Some of you are rowing into the headwinds at 3 a.m. in the morning, and you're wondering where God is. He's there. Do you see him? If you can't see him, do you believe he is Emmanuel? Just flesh this out a bit for the personal implications for us from these two stories. We need to look for the patterns and clues of God's activity in our lives, which means we need to step back from our compartmentalized, fragmented view of our lives and, and look at, reflect on the broader scope of God's activity and what he's been doing and saying. For example, if your life were a book and if each chapter represented five years or ten years and if it's each chapter, if you were to put a title on that chapter and depending on how long you've been alive, if you were to put put titles in all those chapters, and then look back at all those titles, what would it tell you about about God's activity in your life? Would, would, Would Jesus be saying anything to you by the scope and the breadth of what he's been doing already? That'd be one way to reflect. See, if the disciples had stepped back and said, well, wait a minute, last week we had a revival, and we were casting out demons, and here we are this week at the feeding of the 5,000, and now that looks like that, that, that thing over there doesn't look very good. They think it's a ghost. Well, they were casting out demons last week. Why are they frightened this week? If you look into the pattern of God's activity in your life, you'll learn how to respond to situations you don't understand and recognize God's presence in your life. So we need to to look for those patterns. We need to step back and reflect and ponder what God has already been doing. What are the scriptures that he's given to you? Maybe life verses. What do those tell you about what God is saying? So that that would just be a starting point. Here's the second thing you can do. Check your motives. And what I want to do here is, uh, on this one, is is if you you go from Mark 6 to John 6, Mark 6 gives us the the front end of the feeding of the 5,000. John chapter 6 gives us that same story, but then tells us what happens after Jesus gets in the boat and goes to the other side of the lake. And, And what happens is when he goes to the other side of the lake, the crowd that he just fed yesterday is clamoring to be with him again. 
And when they're there with him again, and Jesus sees the crowd, listen to what he says to them. Here's the verse from John 6, 26. I tell you the truth. You want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understood the miraculous signs. Don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Friends, you've made the journey around the lake to be with me today because yesterday I gave you bread and fish. And today, you're with me again today, not because you believe I say who I am. You're with me today because you think you're getting bread and fish again. You're following me because of what you think I will do for you. That's that's what Jesus, he's calling out their motives. And he's exposing this life goes better with Jesus discipleship. And so he's calling him on their motives. And, and then you get into this, this whole discussion. Jesus starts talking about being the bread of life. But here's the thing for us is we need to check our motives. Are you in this relationship with Jesus Christ because of what he'll do for you? And friends, if that's your primary motive, what will happen is when God does not answer the prayer or when you're burying your spouse or when, you're, when you have a miscarriage or when you can't get a job or when you, you enter into depression, you, you, you can't see Jesus. You're looking for him. If, if you got into this because life is supposed to go better with Jesus, you're going to take Jesus and put him on the shelf and return him from wherever you found him. But... If you got into this relationship because of your love for Jesus, because what he accomplished on the cross for you by grace, if you're in this journey because you believe in him and you keep believing in him and your hope is in him, that even, even though it's difficult to see him at times, even though when he's playing hide and seek and, and it's maybe even frustrating, you will stay in the relationship because it was never about life goes better with Jesus. It was about hope in Jesus. And yes, there is much joy in this relationship in Christ. But we have to check our motives. Why are you following? Why am I following him? Check your motives. Last thing I would say to you is this. Keep coming to Jesus. You you keep coming to Jesus when you begin that relationship. It's not a one and done kind of thing. If you were to read more of, of, of John chapter 6, it's really fascinating. Because Jesus exposes the, the people's motives. And then he says something that just flat out offends them. He says this to them. They had loaves and they had meat yesterday. Today they're coming and they say, well, you know, what, what's in it for me today, Jesus? And he's exposing their motives. And, uh, and then he says, I am the bread of life. And then he says this to them. You want eternal life? You want to be with me? Then eat my flesh and drink my blood. Well, that's a great church growth strategy. <laughs> he says, oh, you, you, okay, you want, to, you want to be with me? You want eternal life? Eat my flesh, drink my blood. They're like scratching, what? And this is a strange teaching. What in the world is he saying? That's just weak. And what do the people do? They go home. Because they're not really interested in who Jesus is. What they're interested in is what he will do for them. And he's not delivering. Now, a lot of people look at that, that statement, you know, eat, eat my flesh, drink my blood, and say, well, it's, he's foreshadowing communion. It's not about communion. 
Communion's about that, but that's not about communion. Let me explain the difference. He's saying, don't follow me based on what I will do for you. Follow me for eternal life. And here's what eternal life is. Explain this here, because again, we have clues. John 6, 35, Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. If you are hungry and you want to satisfy that hunger, then what you do is you come to him. If you are thirsty and you want to satisfy your thirst, you believe in him. And the English language doesn't fully capture what's being said here. What he's saying is, whoever keeps coming to me will never be hungry again. Whoever keeps believing in me will never be thirsty again. Meaning, look, when you can see me, fantastic, keep coming to me. When you can't see me, keep coming to me. When you, when you can see me, keep drinking. When you can't see me, will you keep drinking? This coming and believing is what, what builds the relationship. So the keep coming to Jesus is understand. We, come, we keep coming to him when we feel like he's close and when we don't feel like he's close. It's an act of faith. It's a step of belief. And even this morning, we're going to celebrate communion, and communion is about the relationship. We're remembering. We're taking the, the bread, which, which symbolizes the body of Christ. And, and this morning, you're going, to, you're going to come forward and you dip that bread in, in a cup. And the cup symbolizes the blood of Christ. And we're going to relate to him. And guess what? Some of you this morning, since the close presence of God, and those are wonderful seasons... And you can come forward this morning and remember that Jesus Christ went to the cross and gave his life for you so that you could have life. You could have a future and you could have hope. And you can dip that bread in the cup and you can rejoice in that. Some of you this morning sense God is far from you. He's, it's like he's hiding. And for you to participate in communion is an act of faith to say, I'm going to keep coming and I'm going to keep believing even though right now, it doesn't make sense. I'm not going to fall prey to this life goes better with Jesus and give up on him when maybe I'm even offended with what God is doing or not doing in my life. Or when he's not answering prayers the way I think he should be. I, in an act of faith, am coming and stating my beliefs.